So tell us what happened today. <laughs> <laughs> well, I got up. Um, we went to the Kellogg Center at Michigan State University to listen to a talk by Phil Pond. But not ju just the talk. We kind of had a, like a little inside view. Philip, Philip Blonde, like the hair color, B-L-O-N-D without an E. Yes. Okay, and who, who is he? He is, um, David Cameron, as in the Prime Minister of the UK, is his uh, advisor on this large initiative called the Big Society, and they're about to pass a significant amount of legislation that restores uh, financial control and decision-making control um, to all localities. So if you had to characterize, this is fairly radical uh, legislation, and if you had to characterize it, you'd say it's all, it's about relocalization? Holy. I mean, in other words, when he, when, it, when he was asked to put it in historical perspective, he says we're bringing back common law, and we're moving it back to the point of the pre-Norman invasion. <laughs> so Where, you know, control was fully vested in localities. So they're bringing back the Magna Carta or something like that? Something to that effect, yes. Wow, okay. And you started to say uh, we had sort of an insider's view. Oh yeah, we, we got to have a lovely time. Um, there was lunches and this and that, and a very sort of small press conference. Um, we just talked casually and uh, freely, answering questions to anyone who would ask, and you got to record, and um, that was nice. And then, just, and then just sort of all the folks that were um, sort of around the table to make it happen, various funders that helped bring him here. So but, tell me about the groups involved in, in this program. Okay. Um, there's the Center for the Study of Christianity and Culture. Yeah. And its funders. Private individuals, the Center for Catholic, uh, the Center for Catholic Thought, and uh, another group that I can't quite remember, and one other group that works with charter schools and uh, supporting alternative education, and they all, you know, are funders for the Center of Christianity and Culture, and they have an annual conference and they invited Philip Blonde to come speak. The group I'm with, Respublica USA. You say you're with. Oh, you're yeah. a member. I'm sort of. You know, Are you on their board somehow? We we're not even there yet. Sort of, I'm sort of, I'm sort of an, on an advisory board, okay. an ad hoc advisory board. Okay. Who's um, sort of shepherding the development of, of Respublica USA? Respublica USA is sort of an arm of the nonprofit founded in the UK 18 months ago by Philip Blond. Uh, largely, he but, got an appointment from the from the Prime Minister and. Then, uh, but then came some money, and they founded a think tank called Respublica. Founded a think tank, okay. Yes. So they do the thinking and the policy conversation, create policy and generate policy, and then bring in and say, okay, here's some ideas for how we might do things differently. And then people pick it up. So Respublica USA is a broad collection of folks, largely brought together by this fellow Elias Crimp. He's, Elias Krim. Yes, and he's been shopping. I mean, he found all these people the way he found me. He was on reading. Facebook. <laughs> no, 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 he was reading my articles in the Distributors Review, which is an online an online magazine. An online magazine. And he said, "Oh, I should see if I can find her." And he emailed me and asked me if we could talk. And we've been chatting ever since about. Uh, 
coalescing with Public USA, how it might take form, what, what it would look like, who should be involved, who should be in the conversation. I gave him a long list of names, he called a lot of those people and got them into the conversation. Um, and then, uh, and, and he's been doing that with everyone. Like uh, Philip Bess at uh, Notre Dame, professor of uh, architecture. He called him and said, oh, so who should I talk to? And that's how this guy Scott Ford got into the conversation. He's this big champion of, of new urbanist design. Okay. And so on. This is all, uh, in some way I feel like this is all related to, eventually we'll be having some kind of conference at Saginaw where uh, Kutzler will be involved. And, yeah. <laughs> and uh, and various other people will all, will all be involved. You remember David Corden? He came and talked to that globalization conference. Yeah. So, yeah, he'll probably be there. I mean, some kind of thing. Well, here's, here's the thing of it. Um, so first of all, you know, so Philip Blonde is taking taking credit, but I have to tell you, I've been talking about urban homesteading for a very long time. Yeah, well, he was he was sort of taking credit for the term. The term, because right. He said something about it in his uh, little uh, first, little to quick tour of uh, of Detroit today. He was yeah. driven around to see some uh, Detroit neighborhoods. And what's happening in Detroit? And and his commentary uh, was priceless. Yes, I've never seen anything like it. Yeah, well, I people in, the, in Europe uh, have never had. Uh, there's, I don't think there's ever been circumstances in which they would throw away a major city like a used Kleenex. Yeah, <laughs> say that's never been the case in, the, in yeah. Europe. And, and, um, yeah, and. They never were able to, for various reasons of space and time and geography and money, to consider whole square miles and blocks of trash of of urban landscape to be disposable. Yeah, so it's crazy. It's, 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 it's madness. And there it's, it is. But it's the eventual playing out of the madness of the original. Uh, Sprawl, the original drive to uh, the car-based culture and the that um, basically the antithesis of uh, location, 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 which was your location doesn't matter as long as you uh, as long as you got a car as long as you've got a car. Goodness. Yeah. Oh, but so um, the, my proposal early on um, was sort of like the third piece of what I'm. What, what I'm trying to do in Saginaw. There's the community aspect, there's the, the jobs aspect, and sort of uh, creating cooperative jobs, and also this, this uh, policy perspective. Um, and my proposal was basically a local, locally focused think tank that thinks about Saginaw's problems, whatever they are, crafts solutions and, and works to implement them. And it doesn't stop there because there's a thousand cities right. like Saginaw in some ways who can use whatever we do to, to basically reiterate it. Iterate that and learn from it and try this again. So, okay, we, we're going to talk about um, urban homesteading, 21st century homesteading. And uh, Saginaw's going to try it this way and here's where it's successful, here's where it fails. And this is what we want to try, you know, going forward. So now we take it to South Bend, and South Bend says, you know, we don't have quite the same situation, but this might work here. Right. Where we're successful, then that, that might work here. Right. And, uh, and my proposal was that there would be the, the, 
what I call it, the Three Rivers Center for Virtue and Public Policy. Huh. Because uh, that's what that's what I see missing from public policy is is virtue. That we want good things for everyone. Good outcomes. We want good outcomes. Yeah. I mean, and if we don't have good outcomes, we have a fundamental problem. So um, I'm not going to try and summarize his whole talk or his whole approach because I, I knew nothing about the guy before today uh, and his thought. But um, it seems to me that. Sitting in, in the audience and overhearing uh, to, to his formal talk, and also overhearing the informal chat, uh, that um, he's definitely about what I'd call a lot of third-way political solutions, uh, third party uh, in America, um, the sort of uh, absolute utter futility of this hard left-right split. Right. And, and that it's not even a split. Yeah, that, it, that ultimately when you when you uh, get hard into the left, it sort of wraps around and becomes right, and vice versa, yeah. where you have extreme collectivism becomes extreme uh, individualism. individualism. And both of these isms kind of break down, and where you have conservative ideas in economic policy now were the liberal ideas of the 70s, yes. you know, in American thought. And, but basically, it's about, largely about stopping perverse incentives. Yes. So when he's talking about the welfare state, uh, he's saying, you know, he said, made clear early on in his talk about opposed to the notion of a welfare state per se, but let's talk about uh, incentives and let's talk about uh, commitment. He, he used an interesting phrase, I thought, which was um, like the one way, it wasn't exactly this, but it, uh, what's the... Um, What's the term for oh entitlement a one way entitlement one way entitlement yes in which you the person the impoverished person are entitled to some benefit housing benefit in the UK or a, you know here in Michigan it would be a, like a, a food card EBT food card yeah uh, program to a food benefit so. This one-way entitlement in which you are entitled to receive uh, benefits from the state, but there it's one way. There's there's nothing they can reasonably expect of you. And there was some people in the group were getting into some areas I disagreed with, talking about um, the perverse incentives of of unemployment, of, of unemployment uh, benefits, and especially extending them. But I don't, in, when I look at it in the context of just how desperate the employment picture has gotten, it's hard for me to go there. But I do understand, to a certain extent, where they're coming from. It's just when you get business people in the same room and they're they're saying, oh, this is a good job. It pays $7 an hour. I have to grit my teeth. And not bite anyone. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so he was, 
there's a lot of backpedaling and defensive, like, well, you know, housing there is, is cheap and whatnot. Well, but, but that's not a, that's not a middle class wage by any means. It's half of minimum wage. It's half of what minimum wage should be. It's not a living wage by any stretch of the imagination. So you've got two parents who both, like, between them, they could make minimum wage if they both work 40 hours a week. And they could raise a child, but they could not, they cannot stay out of debt and they cannot, uh, accumulate any real assets, probably can't, can't uh, purchase a home. Well, and that was, the, that was his thing. Real, um, real estate is cheap, but you're always going to be a renter there in that situation, because well, your job is going to be tenuous to begin with. Well, the, the, this, this, was, this was Mr. Blonde's thing. Yeah. The welfare state gives you income, not assets. And it's not about income. It doesn't, it's about assets. It doesn't get you involved in the foundations of society, the ownership society, the community involvement, the sense of belonging, and the sense of reciprocal responsibility for your community. Right. That, yeah. you know, your community gives you this, and you give your community that. Yeah. And that's how the community functions and stays afloat. The upshot of it, and you're not going to take credit directly, so I'll give you indirect credit, is that... Yeah. You were not personally responsible for all aspects of this program or anything like it, but you were partially responsible for the the process of events and dialogue that led to getting Philip Blonde to Michigan. Yes. And this, your involvement with that and your involvement in this process and this conversation is what led you personally to, well, if you were invited to this to this thing. Yeah. And what led you to want so very badly to get down here, even though you've been sick, really you're walking sick. with a cane, you're not 100%, you still have medical procedures to undergo, and yeah. you still, uh, you still well, have mean, a lot of healing to do. I do. But you're improving. I'm improving. That's, that's the good news. And so this is why I spent the day schlepping, basically, baby, so that you could hard. spend as much time as reasonably could be accomplished chatting with everyone, watching the, meeting everyone, interacting and seeing the program and whatnot. Now, I couldn't keep the baby off you all day, you know, because he needs to nurse and he needs his mom, but uh, but I, I took, took him part of the time. So. No, that, that was just, it was fabulous. It was really good. And I, I mean, what it, what it was is that I'd been pushing and saying, you know, it's all good and well to talk in the Beltway. It's all good and well to talk on the coast. He was planning to come to LA and DC. Oh, DC, like DC and New York, and then like maybe one in LA. Um, to give talks. To give talks. Yeah. And I said, no, you've got to come to Midwest. I, you know, you don't know anything about what's happening here unless you've. Unless you've seen it. Seen it's, the Midwest. It's really hard to, and he didn't see very much, but it's no. really hard to understand the scale of the desolation. Oh, we're talking about here. You know, uh, I mean, you couldn't, it's like uh, trying to explain the firebombing of Dresden or something like that, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, and, and it's, a lot of it's below the surface too, like it's easy to see the abandoned homes and whatnot, but um, you need to talk to the people. You need yeah. to talk to people working people and working poor in our community, in, in our neighborhood, our adopted community.
community and just hear what they have to say and and uh, do the numbers yeah. of what the what how people are, are trying to make make ends meet make an ends meet make a life make a living make a future for themselves and their family and it's it's crazy it's not sustainable not by a long shot but you know maybe this will shift the terms of the debate and I hope it does it seems like the British are more willing to run a, run an experiment to run a social experiment to run a policy experiment yeah and they're taking a more pragmatic bent towards saying let's uh, let's try these initiatives and let's see if we get pragmatic results out of them and there are, I'll see in the notes to this, I'll see if I can include links to the uh, Respublica's um, the documents because apparently... All free online. All free online. I wonder if he uh, will make his PowerPoint. Maybe he could uh, run off a PDF of his charts and graphs so that... Because uh, it, it'll be hard to, to follow not the charging graphs. To follow his talk because it's fairly uh, chart heavy. Anyway, I'm going to shut this off and let Grace nap a little bit while I drive us home and maybe stop for gas along the way. But uh, let's, let's shut it off. So, yeah, we have, I filled up both internal and memory card today with uh, various talks and uh, bits and so I have a lot of I now have to figure out what to do with all this <laughs> so anyway so if this acts if this winds up as an introduction uh, the next thing you'll hear ought to be some bits from uh, Philip Blonde's uh, talks take care all goodbye some of my readers are, aren't familiar with sort of your thinking about government society and where we're going and how sure. to fix it could you sort of talk about that real briefly and yeah I mean largely speaking I think if you want within the American t context really you've got the Tea Party and Occupy Wall Street and the Tea Party is protesting against big government and increased taxation and uh, the bailout of of banks rather than localities and people and the, the debt that model generates and Occupy Wall Street is invading against the banks and, and market concentration, widening inequality. And really my thinking puts them together and says, says they're the same phenomenon. Um, the sort of the centralized state and the concentration of wealth aren't accidental outcomes. They're, they're outcomes that are clearly visible from the type of policies we followed. And largely in the West, we followed extreme collectivism and extreme individualism. And we've collectivized through the state and disempowered ordinary people. And we followed uh, extreme individualism through the market and essentially centralized wealth and left far too many people behind. And people tend to think left and right are opposed, but they're not. They're very similar because they produce similar outcomes, but also they're either side of an oscillation. And the reason that you move so extremely from collectivism to individualism and back again is that if you live in a purely collectivist context you're going to create 
individuals who want to break out and who feel they owe nothing to anyone. And going to Russia is a very good example of that. Communism, I'm going to talk about this tonight. Uh, communism was meant to make everyone love us. And there's a society, I've never been to a society where people care for each other less. Mm -hmm. um, and the, by the same token, if you have run your economy on a zero-sum game, on a, uh, where a, it's not individuals, but if, I, if for sake of argument you have sort of uh, a world viewed as aggressive individuals some individuals will win everything mm -hmm. and many other people will be left with nothing and then you have to reinvent the state and collectivism to pick up the pieces so i think what we're seeing now is the shift from the two dominant modes of politics uh as revealing that they're they're the same and and the, the beginnings of something properly new and properly transformative mm -hmm. One that really opens up the market and one that really thinks through a transformative state. Mm -hmm. So talk about how you bring those together. I guess I'm still not clear how you, I mean, they're similar, well, but how do you... Well, they are brought together. I mean, I, will, I would argue historically they're the same phenomenon, that um, the, the left produced extreme collectivism mm -hmm. and extreme individualism. The first modern individualists were the 60s liberals, you know, who the tune in, turn on, drop out generation, who repudiated the family, repudiated tradition, place, locality, ties, and they wanted the state to make them autonomous. Mm -hmm. So the role of the state was to create people who, who were free from the ties that bind. And that was all left-wing. And then that model moved over into right-wing economics. And so really, sort of in my country, and I suspect also in yours, what happened is a lot of the 60s uh, leftists essentially created the conditions for sort of right-wing economic thinking in the 70s uh, because they just wanted autonomy. So it's already the same phenomenon, I would argue. And then... Um, how we fight it, how we, how we produce what people really want, which is a properly open and free market where there's no barriers to entry and where people can trade and a society that has families and stability at its foundation. Well, that's the question. Mm -hmm. And we, we've got lots of ideas about how to do that, but there's lots of good ideas in America also. Mm -hmm. As you're driving through Detroit today, what ideas, if, if, I, if I were to ask you to advise our governor, Oh, well, yeah, we came up with one, I think. I like the idea of um, 21st century homesteading. So I thought sort of what was interesting is you had all this land. What really struck me is in the city where you have a space that people probably would feel comfortable going into at first, every single floor above the main shop front seemed to be abandoned. Mm -hmm. And if you created a new homesteading for people with talent, whereby if they pool their talents in new kind of uh, business models and you gave as part of their reward property shares in these, in, these, um, in these kind of, they could essentially loft spaces, you could revolutionize everything. And you'd pull in a lot of talented people because no one offers that in America. Mm -hmm. No one offers a, a sustainable local wage and it needn't be high in Detroit, plus kind of assets. Mm -hmm. And if you offered that, who knows what you'd attract. So I quite like the idea of 21st century homesteading, clustering different skills and talents. Uh, um, what you could do is have a city organization that bought it all up um, at a certain price and then structured the dispersal through, through kind of an attempt to create a new type of cluster. Then you've got quite a lot of educational institutions as well. And another factor in economic development is median skill levels. Mm -hmm. And so you have old manufacturing skills, but you don't have new manufacturing skills. 
but um, you know, getting those new skills probably wouldn't take as long as people think. You could talk about it in two years, technical re-education, and then you have cheap land, skilled labour, mixed, reskilling opportunities with the local institutions, and you've got, I mean, goodness me, you've got infrastructure to mm-hmm. die for. So kind of that's all it needs. Um, the only two indicators of innovation across the world are clustering and the presence of tertiary degrees Mm -hmm. Um, and you could attract those tertiary degrees and you can certainly facilitate clustering in the center of Detroit so I think that oddly it could be and China there was an article in the FT today China is now peaking and it needs to move its median skill levels to the next stage of the value chain but will have great difficulty doing so but America has those skill levels and has the, and can teach them to its own population. So you're certainly going to see parts of America um, bidding back into the Chinese model, being able to take, not manufacturing at the bottom, and in a way nobody wants that, but certainly manufacturing sort of higher up the value chain. And um, I don't see why not, really. It just takes vision and, and the right grasp of incentives. And if you put them in medium and long term, homesteading for the 21st century I think that could work as an idea mm-hmm. I like it <laughs> has that been tried in other parts I don't know I just came, we, we came up with it in a, in a conversation but I just thought it was quite a good idea that's very interesting the, the theories you're going through the talks you're, you're yep. living around the country do you have an objective for them when you start thinking about doing it is there I think the objective for them is is um, on the one hand conceptual to say, look, the problems that we're facing are not problems that can be addressed by conventional solutions. The conventional solution of the right won't work and the conventional solution of the left won't work. We're genuinely in a new paradigm. We had a new paradigm in 45 and we had a new paradigm in the early 70s and we're in the same shift now. And that resulted in the creation of um, essentially new forms of ideology by ideology, new ways of thinking, first principles from both left and right with new practices. And I think that's where we are. And I think you can already see an unprecedented shift in American kind of public opinion. It's going to the extremes because the centre isn't delivering. And the centre is polarised anyway. Almost every level down, down your political system, your checks and balances are now not checks and balances on action, they're preventing action at almost every single level. So nobody can do anything. So even when, when your governors and your politicians feel disempowered, how much more so your citizens? Mm-hmm. And uh, so in the one sense, it's quite a dire situation. But in another sense, for an innovative people, it's, it's a genuine opportunity to move it to a different model. And I think that's what I'm trying to advocate, both name the solution for what it is and then talk about, because uh, I'm not naturally a pessimist, talk about what the mix might be that could move us forward. And, and what's interesting is that we in Britain are experiencing very similar forces. So it's, globalism has produced the same problems, albeit realised differently, uh, across most of the West. Question: um, What do you see as the principal difference between, if there's one principal difference between the U.S. and the U.K.? You have no common norms as a as a nation. 
and that's what your biggest difficulty. De Tocqueville identified it, and I think you're seeing it playing out now. So there's no, there's no kind. Everything is politicised, therefore everything is polarised. So there's no, there's no kind of, there's nothing outside of maybe the military. Um, it's not even the presidency because it's a partisan office. There's nothing around which Americans can build new structures of normativity. And you can't progress unless you have something beyond ideology, which you all agree on. And the trouble with taking most of your politics from the French is that, is that in terms of the system, is there's nothing that is not politicised. And so you still remain a revolutionary polity as a result. And, um, and that's very problematic because you can't move forward as a society unless you have common norms. And in Britain, we're a society of common norms that has its civitas first and then divides later into politics. So that would be my, my main call, really. It's what America most lacks. How do you get there? Well, it's very difficult, you know, because you don't have a conservative tradition in the way we do, which is an organic conservatism. Um... And you're sort of Tories fled with the empire loyalists. So you're Whigs, really. You're a liberal constitution. And that's highly problematic because, because if you don't have a liberalism that relies on articulating prior norms, you'll never form prior norms because all liberalism is is will. And if human will is politicised and differs, you can't form the common basis. But America has a pre-revolutionary history. It wasn't always... Uh, it wasn't, you know, he didn't have year zero. So you do have, you do have other constituencies and other presences and many of your immigrant groups, particularly faith, I think. I think um, one of the most interesting aspects of America is it isn't secular in the way Britain's secular. I think that's a very strong plus point in its favour. So you might try, you know, that would be one site in which Americans can regather, whether you're Jewish or Catholic or whatever. And you can differ. You can be a Republican or Democrat within those faith groups. So we need a revival. Well, I think you need a revival of something. Um, and uh, it's not clear quite what. And the trouble is, is, if you say revival and then put something in it that's already failed and been tried, you sound kitsch and outmoded. But I certainly think any successful revival is something new added to something old. And that's what you need. Now, now quite what that will be and the shape it will take <coughs> is... Um, is what's in question. Now, I think it's very clear, I think, uh, that um, that's, what, that's what got Obama elected. I mean, I think he's failed to deliver that, but that's what got him elected. Uh, and with massive working-class support across racial divides. You know, so that shows you sort of what Americans really feel they lack. And I think we need a broader account of American history and American institutions in order to, to deliver that. But on almost every level, you're, you're, you're political where you shouldn't be, in a way. In, in one of the articles that I, that I think Malcolm sent me, wow. you had talked a lot about how isolated people have become. Could you expound on that? Yeah, I mean, the, the dominant norm until very recently um, was that sort of everything in our society isolates people. The rise of one-parent household, the breakup of the family, um, the sort of people gradually being growing up in one-parent households, um, leading to people who don't marry, who don't relate, or if they do, for shorter and shorter and smaller and smaller periods of time, leads to 
the rise of one-parent households in, in England. They've doubled over the last 30 years and they're set to double again uh, over the next 20. Um, so, and similar trends are here. You know, we've seen social capital. It's a horrible term. I apologise for losing, using it, but it's it captures something. People see uh, are essentially associating more and more with people like themselves. Um, so rich Americans tend to associate more and more with other rich Americans and increasingly don't see the needs of other Americans. So often when I give these lectures, and I give the figures on social mobility, Americans don't believe it because they say, my, my, everyone I know is doing well, everyone I know is doing well. But what's actually happened is Americans are in a society of ever-decreasing <coughs> circles where they only associate with people like themselves. They go, as we were saying, they go to their job, their gym, uh, down to a local store, and it remains very much in that group. Mm -hmm. And they relate less and less to people. And a lot of our technological design, television is a hugely atomizing technological development. And our social design and our city design is all about pre preventing people meeting. They don't meet. And then if you're from a community at the bottom half, you know, your life is very, very different. And nobody realises in the other half or the other deciles. So um, it's a bleak. The trends are quite bleak, actually. Um, and that's because, again, both sides have followed the same project. That's, you know... Beyond sort of the 21st century homesteading, talk about some of your ideas as far as uh, like community economic development. Oh, well, I mean, these are, we've published lots of papers at ResPublica. We've published, I think, about 18 so far. And we're not even two years old as an organization. Um, the ideas of mine that have gone into government policy in Britain and abroad, the Dutch have just adopted a lot of our ideas. Um, First of all, mutualisation of public services. So at the moment, most people who work in public service, particularly at the front line, are poor, poorly paid, poorly skilled, often women. Uh, and wages are no longer delivering for people. So I wanted to create a society where, you know, where people had ownership in something else. Um, so we came up with the idea of spinning out public services into essentially worker-owned companies or employee-owned companies. Employee-owned companies are very, very productive, even in terms um, far more productive than traditional company models. So if you spin out a, a public sector company, it delivers more for less. And also workers have ownership and stakes in the business. They rescale up in all sorts of exciting uh, and radical ways. Other ideas we had are self-defining neighbourhoods. So a neighbourhood could define itself for the purposes that I'm going to tell you shortly as a neighbourhood, then it would have the power of budgetary capture, so it could move up the public expenditure chains that have been spent <coughs> on it, capture that money and use it for itself, because we know that the state is a very ineffective um, redeemer of poverty, not least because every management level loses you 20%. This is what I'm going to say all this tonight, so forgive me if, if I repeat myself this evening, but but then with powers of budgetary capture, we can actually capitalise people at the bottom of society. And then we have local planning ideas that localities can submit their own plans for the shape and character of their neighbourhood, that creating structures for hybrid investment and joint venture with um, uh, outsourcing companies and other companies. And also, crucially, people's needs are also capital. 
So, you know, if you're on a benefit line and your family's been on a benefit line for 30 years, it's in effect, it's an income stream that you can capitalise. And what I'm interested in is, can we find ways to capitalise welfare streams that produce a capital effect that move people from dependence to independence? So you usually take a percent, two, three, four, whatever it was, and read Well, it. I mean, just let me give you a... I don't believe in redistribution. I believe in primary distribution. <coughs> redistribution doesn't work and never has, never will. Um, you can have... Enormous levels of redistribution and widening inequality. Indeed, that's what we've got. Um, what works is ownership and market entry and giving people own, uh, ownership of assets because assets are the true origin of wealth, not, not income. Um, so take, for instance, in this is different from, from America, but in Britain, you, if you're unemployed, you get your rent paid and you get your rent paid for 30 years. Um, that money can repay the value of your housing probably three, four, five times over. Um, and yet nobody benefits. The government don't, don't benefit and the tenants don't benefit. But if we create a means to capitalise that welfare stream, it costs the government less because in the end the, the property is paid for and you generate an asset effect for the tenants, which means they're no longer poor and then can use that asset to broker in other business opportunities. So if you understand the system that we currently have as one of ensuring impoverishment and serfdom, which is what it delivers now, it strips people of ownership of capital and assets. If you change it round, it can produce assets and ownership. And that's really what I... And then you, then you properly tackle poverty, while also costing the state less. Better to pay for a property once than four or five times over and still not own it. What about the landowner, though? Aren't they better off with the current system? Well, I think vested interest is always better off under, under, um, under a system and unearned wealth is always better off under a system that taxes um, income rather, rather than wealth. But I'm not really interested in vested interest. What I am interested in is, is the good and how we realise it for the most people and the conditions of human flourishing. I'm also interested in, in, in lower taxes and minimal taxation. And the way you do that is you move the state away from welfare to wealth creating uh, approaches. And you can genuinely produce a win-win where you actually do save the poor from their lot and do stop the state moving into ever more extreme levels of welfare entitlement, which is what it's doing at the moment. So if you do a graph, and I'll show it tonight, you see that the percentage of American families receiving some form of welfare assistance is just about to breach 50%. Once the middle classes get welfare, then you can never get rid of it. And it's permanent which means that as a state you'll need to tax heavily and aggressively and then that's a huge disincentive to investment to proper use of capital and it's hugely unproductive so it might have gone too far in america uh, already and it produces all the deficits we see around us so that in you not necessarily disagree with someone that would say the revival that we need is a revival of entrepreneurial. Yeah, and I completely agree with it. We live in a society that has, as Chesterton said, too much capital and too few capitalists. And actually what we need is mass popular capitalism rather than crony capitalism, which we've got at the moment, which is the state creating monopolies for privileged providers and also genuine monopolies and cartels forming in the private sector itself. 
So what we've got is the rhetoric of free markets, but the delivery of closed markets. If you look at market concentration, and again, I'll talk about this tonight, it's doubled or tripled um, in many cases just over the last 20 years. If you do it over 60 years, it's even more remarkable. So we're now in a situation where most markets are dominated by three or four companies at most, and one of them probably has a 70% market share. And this isn't an open market. This is a closed market. And it's helped by subsidies from the state. It's helped by certain types of tax incentives. And it's helped by the fact we no longer enforce com competition law. So, so it's really about what... The, it's very simple. All we need for popular capitalism is for people, for everybody to own something and the barriers to market entry to be as minimal as possible. Then if people own and they can trade, the pathway to, for prosperity for most Americans <coughs> is relayed. Since most don't own anything, and if they did, they only owed one thing, which then created a bubble economics and a bubble society that bursts and then converts an asset to a liability, then that's hugely problematic. So we've got to produce once more a plural, diverse economy where lots of people own lots of different things in lots of different ways. And then the, the path for economic security is open to them. At the moment, they're reliant on wages, and wages are delivering less and less. So it sounds like despite our rhetoric, we're not very pro-small business. No, we're not. We're, no, no, no. It's a cartel state. Um, uh, we're hostile to small business and hostile to entrepreneurship. And the best way to be hostile to small business and entrepreneurship and protect market share and vested interests is to say you're very much in favour of free markets. And yet, actually, to bring about through, through regulation and legislation the opposite. And what we've produced is, is essentially closed markets, uh, where there really isn't a path to popular prosperity for most Americans through owning their own business. That isn't to say small businesses are, 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 the, are the golden bullet. They're not. You need businesses at every level. You need big business, <coughs> and you need intermediate business. Um, but what you can't have is what we've got, which is a, an hourglass economy where we've constricted the middle. Who has the most successful exporting set, uh, manufacturing economy in the world? Germany. What does it have? The middle step. Uh, a way in which small and medium-sized businesses can cluster, innovate and create both competition and widespread ownership. And neither my country or yours has followed that. We bought into the failed rhetoric and produced monopolies in the name of free markets. The 50% the figure uh, the, of Americans that could come some, some kind of assistance. Yeah, I didn't realize it was that high. How do, we, it's approaching. how do you break it down, I guess? I mean, how much is it? I know, that, that, I mean, that would be that further work. So that's just a way of showing what happens. So GDP is doing that. Wages, especially for men, are doing that. Medium wages are stagnant. So you're getting less and less of more and more through wages. So the cake is getting bigger but your share of it is decreasing or, or stagnating. The entry to the women of the workforce in the 60s, sorry, in the 70s, distorts that somewhat because the, the graph goes like that. But median earnings are essentially stagnant and falling slightly. So if you're, and since we compete on relative peer groups rather than absolute, we don't look back, we compete with our peers. Um, and we compare ourselves often to those above us. Um, people have been trying to keep up with living standards that they can no longer finance. And we've seen a huge rise in personal debt. And then if wages won't deliver and debt is exhausted, people turn to welfareism. 
So welfareism and a failing private sector are completely interlinked. It's the same phenomenon. And in a way, that's modern serfdom. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, a, a lord says, I will provide for you, but you won't really own anything. You'll just work this as a tenant. And we're sort of moving back to, in different ways to that sort of system. And, and the tenancy provides the wage, but that's never enough. So you get entitlement. And a society where entitlement rises to almost 50% of the population is not a society where your private sector is working well. It's a society where your private sector is in trouble. Well, how would you respond then to someone say, uh, you know, firms are currently making record profits, mm -hmm. which is true. Uh, they've got uh, more cash on hand than they've ever had before by a long shot. Uh, when you look at uh, uh, profit per uh, worker, it's at an all-time high. Uh, the private sector looks like it's doing really well. Well, it depends which private sector. Once you produce a cartel state, those at the top will do very, very well. And also, a lot of those avoid any effective taxation at all, GE being but, but one amongst many. So they don't have to pay tax because they can essentially domesticate losses and offshore profits. And also, because they have massive market share, of course they'll produce <laughs> those returns. And actually, the burden on the ordinary worker of taxation is it has been steadily increasing throughout from the 1970s onward. So that's what a, a misbegotten economy looks like. When you have 70-80% market share going to the top three or four players, of course they're going to generate massive returns. But when those returns don't percolate down to ordinary people, you're creating something that free market philosophy was meant to break. You're creating a huge amount of vested interest. What we've got now, the answer to that, is we've got rent-seeking behaviour and rent-creating behaviour. And uh, what we don't have is new market entry to break it up. And what we need to do is create uh, new market entry to break it up so we push it forward to innovation. And if you look at sort of America's share in terms of world innovation, it's both stagnating and falling. And that's partly because we've created the type of economic models where you don't need to innovate. And again, that's another indicator of, you know, oligopoly, really. Monopoly is probably too strong, but various forms of oligopolistic practices. And that's what you've got. So that would be more evidence, I would argue, for what I'm arguing for. You mentioned rent-seeking. Rent it made me think of um, a phenomenon we have here in the States where um, municipalities will lure corporations to bring jobs with tax breaks. What, what do you think about that? Well, I mean, I don't mind that in one sense, and I, we have to domesticate this wealth somehow. But what, what happens is, you know, all they'll do is move from one tax break when it expires to another. And so and we haven't worked out a way to tie these corporations to the communities. And also what happens, it's hugely inefficient, is they leave these communities and all these skilled people, you know, and there's no, we haven't found a way to marshal them or, or create uh, new models. Now, what you need to do is create clusters because clusters aid innovation because the reason why clusters work is you have a number of different players and those relationships between those creates innovation. The bigger your company are, normally and as a rule, the less innovative you are because the type of structures you have to set in place to ensure it works efficiently militate against innovation. The very uh, good companies build in innovation into that model, but most do not. Um, 
So you need to, in some sense, make it such that they don't want to leave and won't leave. And that means you have to have powers beyond tax breaks. You have to be able to bring in uh, your local universities, your local educational institutions, small and medium-sized enterprises, all of which create an environment that will enable the margin they get from the next tax break to not be worth what they're losing in, in, in your hometown. And that's, probably, and that's beyond the current powers that, are, that people are able to, to deploy. So what I'm talking about is pro-business, minimal state, maximal ownership, and in some sense, really the stuff of the American dream. There's no other way to put it. You know, the American dream isn't permanently low wages, economic insecurity and the terror of losing your job, and then being made destitute after 99 weeks, you know. And that's what we're currently facing for far too many people. In economists I know, Luke Lazarus, who I'm thinking about, has been arguing, I think fairly persuasively, that one of the most important things we need is a, um, uh, how's he put it, it's, kind of, it's a matter of uh, place. You've got to have environments, and part of it is a, is a certain density where, in particular, young people that are more mobile want to go to. Uh, here, for example, he did a survey. He's, not at University of Michigan, I think it's in Meredith, but uh, he surveyed uh, people that were uh, young, educated uh, people who were leaving the state, and a third of them had a job offer here in Michigan and left anyway. They want to go someplace like Chicago or somewhere where you've got a, it's a, it's a place and there's this uh, quality of life that they look at. And part of it's with the density you're talking about. You've got, you know, urban uh, transportation. You've got all this type of thing. Do you have you seen that? Do you find well, that? Well, I think that's quite a, a common analysis. I think it's right uh, for that sphere, but I think it's a limited approach. It's certainly true. You want to create. You want to create those those sort of constituencies. But it's also true that you that you need other. You need some. You need longevity of skills. You need. If you can't just have a successful business of small people. The reason why Silicon Valley is successful is, is older people with experience stay. And the type of open network structures that they maintain, other people can join. And actually, that's the only way is to create chains of experience. So what you need to do, so for instance, in Britain, we had this, we were renovating our town centres, but they only ever built one or two bedroom person flats because of stupid density requirements. And that meant that if you had children or got married or had a family, you had to move out. You know? and, and consequently, a society that's only built on young people has no future. You have to build for families, for older people, for staying to create that density. So I think it's certainly true that you would want to attract them in the first place. That's why I think 21st century homesteading would be interesting. Um, way to attract kind of people but you have to build in the futures for us all there's no partial human future it has to genuinely involve involve everybody but I think that I think it would be easy if you created areas in which people feel, felt safe felt radical felt they have a state felt there was long-term support you could really turn around parts of the country by offering them what no one else can offer all they're being offered is low wages and a fake promise of a career, you know, in many, many situations. So if you offer them more, you can offer them low wages, but assets, that, that would change the game. But, I, so, but in, I agree with you insofar as I think that's, that's an important factor. 
And I thought I also think it's indicative because young people, what's good about young people, and I was poor during all my 20s, actually in most of my 30s, come to think of it, um, is that actually you don't make well those calculations when you're young. You can take risks and you want to take risks. And that's a fantastic part of young people. They, can gener- they want to generate something and they believe in what they're doing. And therefore, you don't need to... You can create a community that works for them at much lower cost than you might think or might suspect. Because if you offer them kind of both values in the objective sense and opportunity in the objective sense, they'll take it. Because no one else is offering them that. Most people are offered fantasy, you know. Maybe I'll make it to the top. Uh, but of course, most people don't. And you can't run a society as if everybody's an actor. Well, you know what I mean? You know, <laughs> actors, only 1% are successful. And, uh, and that's fine. You know, people have to try, but you can't run an economy like that. So would you consider yourself then, and I know you're, you're not taking anything that uh, we could consider as a mainline point of view, liberal or conservative, either one. I understand you're, you're going another direction, if you will. Uh, but it seems like in a lot of ways, with the exception of uh, pro-business in a bad sense, that you're really what we would consider more conservative than liberal. Yeah, I mean, I would view myself as, as on the right, and I view myself, I view myself as a radical conservative. Um, but that doesn't mean that what we produce can't be taken up by people on the left, because I think what we're arguing for is beyond the current paradigm of left and right. right. So I want to lead a non-partisan movement, even though I think that, and this is just my personal call, I think the left can never deliver because it's socially libertarian and committed to statism in a way that it's much more fixed. And I think, oddly, on the right, people are much more willing to be critical of of monopolies and oligopolies and be pro-family and pro-association. But that's just my take. That isn't meant to be something I would want to say is a necessary part of my politics. What I really want to be talking about is the future that benefits all people regardless. And I think our ideas benefit all people regardless. If the left somehow went pro-human being, pro-association, pro and pro, um, pro-business pro rather than pro-welfare, that would resonate equally. And that's already happening in England. With yeah, what I, I would argue it used to be a lot more in that direction than it is now. That's true. I think you're right. I think you're right. And the interesting thing, and I don't know what your take would be, when do you think the shift happened in the American left? Oh, well, there was a huge shift in the 60s, yeah. obviously. Uh, you know, um, probably, yeah, probably <clears throat> the 60s, I would think. Yeah. I mean, that's Maybe my sense. I was there, but, you know. Yeah. I mean, in Britain, it happened in 1945. So, um, essentially, um, it's when they nationalised society. Mm-hmm. And they set up a welfare state that gave people one-way entitlement rights. And that created the first new form of political individualism. And it was created by the left, and it was created out of collectivism. That's where you had a right regardless of what you did or put in. That form of political anthropology then became the new left a decade later. Not only do I have a right to these entitlements, I also have a right to all my internal entitlements as well. 
And then that moved into the economic sphere, and the, and, and the right thought this was conservative. So that would be my analysis, really. I think, obviously, it would be different within an American context, but I don't think it's that different. I think that there are striking parallels. <coughs>